Gospel according to Luke, and we'll look at chapter 1, verses 78 and 79. Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79. It's amazing how God coordinates this theme of light, even as it is uh, found in our text. In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 78, uh, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to them who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. We began our Advent preaching by looking at the Apostle Paul's statement that uh, in 2 Corinthians that in Christ all of the promises of God are yea and amen which is to say that the incarnation of Jesus is both the substance and the fulfillment of all that God has uh, graciously promised to fallen humanity. Now, last week in the prophecy of Ezekiel, we fleshed out some of the specific promises that God has made. And we also fleshed out how those promises correspond to the specific needs of our fallen condition. And we also looked at different ways in which Christ has has and continues to deliver and to fulfill those promises that God has made. Now this morning, I want to frame our Advent thinking in the language and logic of the most prominent and profound aspects of our fallen condition which is, to say, in a, to capture it in a single word, it is the problem of darkness. Now, in our text, what we'll be looking at is how Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, uh, using, he's being used by the Spirit as a prophet to connect the birth of Jesus to the giving of light from God, and how that light corresponds to our problem of darkness. Now, let me just give a little backdrop here for Zechariah's words. As we indicated, Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, and in this chapter, what he's doing is actually offering a prophecy which addresses two things. Uh, The prophecy actually begins in verse 68, but it offers, it addresses two things. On the one hand, in this prophecy, which takes up, by the way, the bulk of it, the bulk of this prophecy addresses the birth and the ministry of the coming Messiah. In fact, he says that this coming Messiah, in verse 70, he says this coming Messiah has been spoken by the mouth of the prophets. So one of the main issues that that Zechariah addresses in verses 68 through the end of the chapter is the coming birth or the birth and the, the ministry of the coming Messiah. But secondly, he also emphasizes only in a few verses, primarily what picks up in our in our text and a couple verses prior to that. But he addresses the birth of his own son. And the way he refers to his son, beginning in verse 76, is he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So that's what leads us. As a matter of fact, our text is, is part of his 
addressing the ministry of his own son, John the Baptist. There are three main thoughts that I want to look at here as it relates to this issue of darkness that Zechariah touches on in his words of prophecy. In the first place, the first thing that I want to call attention to is the way that he describes the event of the coming Messiah. The way he describes the event of the coming Messiah. In our text, he says this. He says, the sunrise, and you notice S-U-N, sunrise, shall visit us from on high. That's the way he describes the, the coming birth or the birth of the coming Messiah. That it is the sunrise that shall visit, visit us from on high. Now most commentators recognize this as a reference to Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. And in Malachi verse four, uh, chapter 4 verse 2, the Lord makes this promise through the prophet. The sun, S-U-N, of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. Which is what was captured in the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. Now, this is consistent with other descriptions of the Messiah. In similar terms, slightly different, but similar terms throughout the scriptures, old and new, we address the whole issue of light, especially in Psalms 27. But in various places, the coming of the Messiah is announced in terms that, re that resemble either light itself or as it relates to a sunrise, which means a new, a new day, which is very appropriate because, in essence, the birth of Jesus is equivalent to the beginning of the new creation, which is one of the reasons the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says that God, who in the beginning spoke light into darkness, has in his Son, in the face of his Son, has shined forth his glory, giving us the knowledge in Christ, giving us the knowledge of the Father. But in similar places, we get this imagery, this, this, this metaphoric language that identifies Jesus as a sunrise or as a new day. For instance, in Revelation, he is called the bright and morning star. A favorite, favorite phrase of bright and morning star. Peter calls him the day spring from on high. In John chapter 1 verse 4, in his prologue, his great gospel prologue, the apostle John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then later in verse 9 in the same prologue, John says, The true light which enlightens everyone coming into the world. So the birth of Jesus is called the entrance of light. It is entrance not only of light in general, but it is the entrance of the light into the world. In fact, the light that is in Jesus is a light that cannot be found anywhere else in the world, or else he wouldn't be called the sunrise. He wouldn't be called a unique light. And, and in that regard, how is Jesus light? Well, we know that in his deity, of course, that we, it speaks of the countenance of God. And, and certainly the countenance of God is revealed in the person of Christ. But Jesus is light for everyone in the world. 
And in, in, in a number of ways, one thing we know, one way we know that Jesus is light is because in, if we use the language that David uses in Psalms 19, saying that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. And, and he speaks of natural revelation and saying that those things that have been created by God reveal something about God. Paul takes that up and says that the visible things communicate the invisible things about God. Now, I've often said in talking about natural revelation, which both Romans 1 and Psalms 19 refer to, that included in natural revelation is humanity. In other words, we can look at the stars in the sky, we can look at the moon in the sky, we can look at the creation, and we can say there's a great creator. But the greatest display of God's glory in the earth is man himself. Fallen as we are, man is still an, a, an, an, a reflection of the power and the invisible attributes of God. Now here's my point. If fallen humans in their acts of kindness, if fallen humans in their creativity are a reflection of the light that is in God, then how much more so when you see a human being without sin? If a flawed individual can still be a reflection of the glory and the greatness of God, then how much more so? Can we look at a human being who loves his neighbor as himself, really loves his neighbor as himself, without qualifications, without any failures, without any interruptions, loves God with all of his heart? Brothers and sisters, there's no, in Jesus, there's no terrible twos. You see, we get, in other words, Jesus is in his flesh as good as my mother thought I was. <laughs> and she thought pretty highly of me. She, she actually thought I was pretty good. And most mothers do think that their children are pretty good. But in Jesus, he is light. He is the light that, that reflects something of the excellence of the person of God because here is, a, here is a human being doing the will of God in the flesh that God has given him. So he's light. And the reason that he is light is because of our great need, which brings us to the second thing. Not only do we see how Zechariah describes the, the coming of our king, but also we see in this passage that Zechariah tells us, he tells us that we need a sunrise. We need a visit from the sunrise from on high. And the reason we need it is because Zechariah says we sit in darkness. As a matter of fact, he describes it in a twofold manner. He says we need this visitation of light because we sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. We sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Let me just make five broad observations concerning that phrasing. We sit in darkness. Uh, and we, as a matter of fact, I read a great post the other day, um, a blog post, where a young lady from the Anglican church, and she said this, that Advent begins at night. And I love that 
Advent begins at night, and she wasn't. She didn't, she didn't mean after six. What she says is, in essence, is that the need for Advent is because of the dark night of the soul. Let me just make five observations here. One, in broad terms, darkness refers to the moral aspect of our fallen condition. The moral aspect of our fallen condition. This is captured for us probably most profoundly in John's gospel, in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Meditate on that. Light comes into the world. And the people rejected the light. Not be, you would think that when people are in darkness, they say, oh, just give me some light, give me some light. And then when light comes, they reject the light. And the reason they reject the light, well, number one, they don't recognize they're in darkness. But the reason they reject the light is because their deeds are dark. And therefore, they love the darkness. So the darkness that we are in is the result of our fallen condition, but we love it in the dark. Remember, one of the things that we pointed out last week is that we are lost, but we are oblivious to the fact that we are lost. In fact, we are blissfully oblivious to the fact that we are lost. Uh, my mother used to put it this way, they just don't want to be right. That's, that's, that's how it is. Don't, just don't want to be right. And in darkness, even though we are in darkness, when the light comes on, we shut our eyes. Because our moral state is best seen in darkness. And so therefore, when, when in broad terms, when the Bible speaks of the darkness of humanity, it is referring to our immoral state that we are naturally a part of. Secondly, darkness also refers to the corruption of our reasoning. It's not just our immorality, but it is the corruption of our reasoning. It's not that we are not able to think, we're just not able to think right. And so our reasoning is corrupt. This is the way that Paul addresses it in Ephesians 4 verses 17 through 19 where he says, don't be like the rest of the Gentiles walk who walk according to the futility of their own minds. In fact, the way he expresses it, not only is it futile, but he says in verse 17, and I find myself alluding to this quite a bit, he says, now I say this, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He says they are darkened in their understanding. Just pause on that for a moment. Darkened in their understanding. So why is it that good seems right? Because their understanding is darkened. There is a very big trend among people, uh, personality measurers. We always have those personality measures. And some of you might be familiar with the Enneagram, where you find out what number you are best associated with. And they looked at all of these personality traits. But the two dominant things that they look at, and they build personality features around these two things, and everything else gravitates. What gives you the most pleasure, and what is it that you are most afraid of? And so they work the personality traits basically around those two things. Those, what is it that gives you the greatest pleasure? 
And what is it that you are most afraid of? And, and it's, it's in those areas that reflect our darkness, the native darkness of our fallen condition, so that we take pleasure in those things that we shouldn't. We take delight. Now, we can do it in, obviously, in some, some rather perverse ways, but even, for instance, when we look at something that has become a common trope in comedy, a person slips on a banana peel, and if it's seen in the right context, we chuckle. We chuckle. You see? And why do we chuckle? Because we find it funny. And we don't think that there's something dark about humans who have been created in the image of God, who have been created to love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't see what's twisted about finding pleasure in their pain. Here's why we know that. It's, it, and listen, that, that's not saying, oh, I, I can't look at that anymore. Because, no, that's, I'm just explaining our darkness. <laughs> We, we, we're, we're twisted, we're, we're dark, and we need to understand it as being dark. Here's the reason we know that is darkness, and that is because if you slip on a banana, a banana peeling, you won't find it funny. You see, brothers and sisters, our reasoning, our reasoning is darkened. Paul goes on to say they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Darkness refers to our moral failures, but darkness is also a good description of our reason our corrupt reasoning. We are not able to think consistently as we ought. Therefore, we, can, we, we come up with utilitarian good, but our reasoning is often faulty. Thirdly, this darkness both of our immorality and of our reasoning, this darkness is inexorably linked to the fact of death. It's linked to death. You see, brothers and sisters, as sinners, we are under the sentence of death. Death is at work naturally in our members. And so since we are under the penalty of death, then even as we are alive, the shadow of death is menacing all around us. It, 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 it's like going through a graveyard at night. It's, it's not that it's, it's, you know, otherwise in the daytime it's a nice place, it's, it's peaceful, people come and they, they remember loved ones who are gone, but when it's at night and everything gets stranger at night. I remember writing years ago that everything is louder at night. Drippy faucets are louder at night. Crying babies cry louder at night. And even creeping insects, they are louder at night. You ever notice that you don't even think of them during the daytime, but when the lights are out, seems like it gets louder. Heartbeats sound louder at night. 
and the darkness that is in us, the fact of death. We can, we can act like we'll live forever as long as we approve of what we see in the mirror. But every time we get a notice that so-and-so died, so-and-so's mother passed, we are reminded that we are dying. And that's what the writer of Hebrews means when it says that we have been held in bondage by death. And the fear of death has, has, has crept all over us and all around us. Some folk are afraid to have fun because they know they're going to die. I remember in 1968, you know, it was a turbulent year politically, and I was a child at the time, 10 years old, but within, within a, it seemed like a two-month span, in April, we had the death, the, the, the assassination of Martin Luther King, and the funeral was all on television. And, in, and then in, in June, you had the assassination of Robert Kennedy, all on television. And as a child, I, for two weeks, I couldn't sleep. I was gripped by this, this, this fact of death. And then I go to school, and, and two weeks later, a kid who's 10 years old had been killed. And then all of a sudden, it's, it, it dawns on me, no, it's not 39-year-old civil rights leaders. No, it's, it's not 40-something-year-old candidates for presidents that die. Little boys die. The shadow of death. The shadow of death creeps in the darkness. And it's a reminder that, that I am not as morally upright as I ought to be. It's a reminder that even my reasoning is off. So there's an inexorable link to death and darkness. The darkness of our souls. And the reminder that we too shall pass away. That's why Zechariah says that we sit in darkness, and he doesn't then just go on. He says, we sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Fourthly, ultimately, we sit in darkness because God's face is turned away from us. That's, that's, that's what it means. It's, when we talk about the countenance of God, God says, the day you eat, you'll surely die. And you can say, well, Adam began to die, and he did. But the day he ate, God turned his face away from him. Now, he did give a promise so that he could look upon him. Brothers and sisters, in our natural state, we are born in a condition where the face of God is turned away from us. And what good is it to be alive and have the omnipotent omnipresent, never forgetting God turn his face away from us. That's why in the Hebrew benediction, the Levitical benediction, the benediction caused that says, may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and may his countenance be upon you. Why? Because without God's face being turned towards you, and we know again, it's metaphor. It's a figure of speech. There is no place where God's face isn't. Here's his point. God looks upon you, but not with favor. And I've often said about hell, you know, people, I remember growing up and hearing people say, oh, go to the devil, meaning because they were too cute or too sanctified, I guess, to say hell. 
go to the devil. And I remember thinking that the devil was in charge of hell. No, he's not. He's not in charge of hell. He's just an inmate just like the rest of them. <laughs> and he's not been given any privileges. You see, we don't, we don't the, the hellishness of hell is not that you have to deal with the devil. The hellishness of hell is that you have to deal with God. And you have to deal with him without mercy. And you have to deal with him without grace. You get to deal with God on your own merits. That's what's hellish about hell. That's why David says, where can I go to escape your presence? Can I fly? He says, if I could take up the wings of a bird and fly to the uttermost parts of the heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in hell, there you are. The hellishness of hell is the presence of a holy and just God without a mediator. But here's a fifth and final observation on this darkness. Darkness is not only inexorably linked to death, and darkness is not only because God's face is turned away from those that he has not extend grace to, but the combination of any or all of these previously these four previously mentioned things about darkness, it creates in us existential internal darkness. And here's what I mean by that. The fact that we know that we are not morally what we ought to be, the fact that we our reasoning is darkened, the fact that, that, that we are connected to death, and the fact that God's face is turned away from us creates internal darkness that comes out both emotionally and psychologically. It's what we call sometimes depression. It's the dark seasons of the soul. It's those seasons when we feel like, wow, I'm, I'm dying and I can't stop it, or I, 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 why am I doing this again? It's those reasons, it's those thoughts that trample through our thoughts and our, our, our th- uh, th- through our minds. It's those things that make us discontent with the very things that we think we ought to be content with. It's what causes us to be disappointed in ourselves and in others. It's a state of darkness. When we look at what we have projected for our, ourselves and we look 20 years later and say, I didn't make it, there comes darkness. When we look at what, what we projected when we gave our children all of those magnificent names that mean so many great things in Africa and then in America, all it means is at 30 they're still living at home. <laughs> There's a darkness. There's a darkness. We are darkened by our failures. There's a darkness that that clings to our thoughts when we lose things and we lose people. Here's what Zechariah has told us. He He tells us that the birth of Jesus is nothing less than a visitation from the sunrise on high. And who needs a visitation from the sunrise on high? People who sit in darkness. 
people who who are who who are who have problems with themselves even when there's no one around people that understand that they're not what they ought to be even if they are better than they used to be they still recognize and thank God for such a consciousness they still recognize I I'm not what I ought to be people who are connected to death and realize that we are still dying even as we live older and boy I am I thank God for being in Florida I've never seen as many 90 year old people that are just 90 like 90 is the new 60 I'm I'm cool with that but brothers and sisters we still live in the shadow of death And because we live in the shadow of death, there are shadows that lurk within us. Failures and frustrations, disappointments, illnesses, stuff that we used to remember. Sometimes we just get mad because we forget. I was upset uh, Sunday, this past Sunday in our Sunday school class, we're talking about the, the Trinity and question was raised, well, what is that error concerning the Trinity where um, it's presented as God is, is seen manifest himself one way at one time and another way at another time, and it's right on the tip of my tongue. And I beat myself up all week long because I couldn't remember it. And in the middle of the week, it all of a sudden came modalism. There it is. Oh, how come I couldn't remember that? <laughs> then I got mad because I forgot something that should be second nature. Brothers and sisters, There's darkness. We sit in darkness. And we sit in the shadow of death. And it's for this reason that the sunrise, the day spring, the morning star has entered into time and space so that we could deal with our darkness. That brings us to the third and final point here. And that is the birth of Jesus is the visitation of the sunrise. And the visitation of the sunrise from on high is the light that we need until he returns. Zechariah says this. He says that he has come to guide our feet into the way of peace. He has come to to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here's the implication that the reason we need the light is so that we can know where peace is. Because as long as we are in darkness, we will go to the wrong sources for peace. Everybody knows that we need peace, but we don't get peace. We don't look for it in the right places. Peace is not found in personal possessions. Peace is not found in a bottle. It's not found in a pill. It's not found by improving what we look like on the outside. When Zechariah says this, that, that he has come to guide our feet into the way of peace, I think it speaks to at least two things. One, it tells us how we can go and find the face of God instead of having his face turned away from us. In other words, he guides us into the way of peace because he takes us from our native darkness into children of light. 
So he guides us into the way of peace as it relates to salvation. So the fear, in fact, earlier in um, the same prophecy, he says that his son will give the knowledge of salvation, or he, he talks about the promise of the Messiah so that we can serve God without fear. Because here's what we have in Christ. He says so that we may be able to serve him without fear. That we would be able to to serve God without being afraid of messing up. You see, in other words, here's one of the reasons for the light of Jesus coming. is so that we would know that we are not able to satisfy God. We are not able to turn the, the frown of God into a smile by anything that we can do. We have the favor of God upon us because he's given us the gift of Jesus Christ. And it is only through the gift of Christ that we are able to see the pleasure of God. And so when he says that he guides our feet into the way of peace, I think what he means first First of all, is that he guides us into a state of, uh, he transfers us from being children or from being, being objects of wrath to being a child of God. Brothers and sisters, what ought to be able to put us to sleep at night is to know that I am his, that he's my heavenly father, and there's nothing that I can do that will change that. He's already taken me down to the courthouse, and he's adopted me. Now, I know I grew up in an African-American church. We have a whole lot of folk that adopt you as your ch- as, as child. That's my play mother. That, no, God doesn't. He doesn't have play children. In fact, as you know, as people get older and, and people pass away, we come to discover real children versus play children. And sometimes that aunts and uncles are really just cousins. You see, here's what God does. He, he doesn't just say, oh, you're like a child to me. What he does is he takes us out of the kingdom of darkness. And as, as Paul says in Colossians, he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So when he says he guides our feet into the pathway of peace, reconciliation with God is our transfer into the kingdom of light. So I think on the one hand, Jesus comes, he comes, he is the sunrise of, 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 uh, from on high, and he visits us so that we can make our peace with God and God, by, God, uh, by accepting the peace that God makes with us. We're reconciled. And as reconciled, we are children. And there's nothing that's going to change our child status. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Once we have come to Jesus, and and I had to learn this, really, as a Christian, I had to learn that when you come to Jesus, all of your troubles doesn't just flush, flush, flush right away. Here's what I discovered coming to Jesus. There's still a whole lot of darkness that I have to wrestle with. Yes, there's darkness, the, the darkness that is within me, I have to still deal with the fact of my own immorality because I am not saved by getting better. I'm declared righteous and get better. But I'm not saved by by righteous acts. And I still have to deal with with the specter of death. Still have to deal with all of that. And therefore, even my thoughts, my, my understanding is blurred. Sometimes, no, no matter what we say, no matter how many scriptures we read, Sometimes our understanding is so conditioned by our culture and by our fallen nature that instinctively we act and think 
in the wrong ways. Here's what it means, I think, for Jesus to be our light. We don't have to stay in darkness. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't mean that in Jesus I won't be depressed. But what it means is that I can be depressed with hope. I do wish this would pass, but I don't have to try to, I, I don't have to, try to find the unanswered question or the, the, the question that can't be answered. Here's what I know that even as I wrestle with the demons within me, and I don't mean that as being demon-possessed, I mean by those fractured parts of my fallen nature. I can come to the light. He guides my feet into the way of peace. And he who told my, my, my sinful soul, your sins are forgiven, he tells my troubled soul, my sins are forgiven. And he reminds me that there's nothing that we have not given up, that we have not gotten more of in him. It reminds us that everything that is necessary for life and godliness has been given. Therefore, we are able to wait. Even as the people of old waited for the shining of this light to come initially, we can wait on the Lord. In the midst of struggles and frustrations and failures, in the midst of disappointment and being disappointed, we can wait on the Lord because we know that he has come to us in our darkness. And he is the light. And he makes us children of light. We're not the source of the light. And you know that's just a burden off your shoulder when you don't have to be Kool-Aid smile Christian all the time. It's just, it's just a, a weight off your shoulders to know that I can stumble and still be his. To know that I don't have to have all of the answers and still be his. To know that my dysfunctioning body and my failing mind are covered in the righteousness of his son. So that when he comes again as the light... He's not going to come as a light that you have to invite people to. He's going to come as the light of the world, that every eye will see him, even those that pierced him. Here's the way Zechariah frames the coming of the Messiah, that he is the sunrise that visits us from on high to those who are in darkness, who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And he guides our feet into the pathway of peace. Because whereas sin brought, brings us the disfavor of God, grace brings us into the favor of God, knowing that his countenance is upon us and it will never turn away. Thank God for the coming of light that we too can be guided into the way of peace existentially in all of our experiences that we who are the children of God can walk in the light even as he is light. Let's pray.